foreigners know just America. We get. Oh, let's see. Prosecutor hits Trump with more brutal legal news. Great. Ten hours ago. Trump received a target letter from Jack Smith in the yeah, January yeah. 6th case. This is the one we've been waiting for at the DOJ. Yeah. So, first of all, to what extent is receiving a target letter from the DOJ a guarantee of indictment? <laughs> I would say it's a guarantee minus one. Ordinarily, when we're at the end of a sizable grand jury investigation, when we have acquired all of the other evidence that we thought we could acquire, the last thing we'll do is we'll send a target letter to the target of the investigation. Now, in the big grand jury investigations, when there's no secret we've been investigating a particular person or you know a few targets, um, we will send a target letter to the target. And we will say, look, basically, you are about to be indicted. So we are inviting you to appear before the grand jury and testify. And you can try to set the record straight. If you have committed no crimes, perhaps you'd like to come talk to the grand jury and try to convince them of that. Convince us that, you know, maybe we have everything wrong here. Now, I will tell you, Brian, I've sent out lots of target letters. I think only once or twice uh, have I had a target actually take me up on the offer and testify. Why? Because they have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. I think it's important to look at the precise definition of a target under the Department of Justice uh, procedures. A target requires two things. One, that prosecutors have substantial evidence linking a person to target to the commission of a crime. And two, the prosecutors look at that person as a putative defendant. What does that mean? It's a person the prosecutors intend to indict. So it's not a guarantee that once somebody gets a target letter, they're absolutely going to be indicted. But rarely, rarely do prosecutors send a target letter and then for some reason not follow through with an indictment. Okay, so so it's not a guarantee insofar as nothing is really a guarantee until it happens, but it's as close as we can get without it being that guarantee. Is that correct? I would bet, I would bet my one buck on it, yes. Okay. Uh, Glenn, Trump claimed that he received this letter on Sunday. So using that timeline, when might we expect an indictment to be unsealed? Yeah, I found interesting Trump's assertion that the prosecutors gave him four days to come appear before the grand jury. Now, first of all, there's been lots of reporting confirming that a target letter was delivered to Trump. Uh, I haven't seen any reporting confirming that, you know, they gave him four days to appear. But it may very well be that they gave him four days to appear. That is a very short fuse deadline. What that signals to me, Brian, is they are ready to indict. And they are prepared to give him four days to make the decision whether he wants to appear before the grand jury and testify. Of course, we all know there's no way he's going to appear before the grand jury to testify. So I think at the expiration of that four days, we could see a federal indictment for crimes on and around January 6, 2021, in fairly short order, like within a matter of a week or two. Okay, so does that mean that we have to wait until that period expires to give him the opportunity to be in front of the grand jury before we can see an indictment unsealed? You know, the only way that that four-day deadline would be altered is if Donald Trump's lawyers today, for example, said, we decline your offer. 
and then there would be no reason to wait another three days. So I, I think it unlikely. I don't think we're going to see an indictment before the expiration of the four days, but we could see one shortly thereafter. And if this letter was reportedly sent on Sunday, would that mean that we're likely looking at an indictment being unsealed on Thursday? Could very well be, but I suspect, again, if I had to bet, it's going to go into next week. Okay. What charges in this case do you anticipate seeing? No, now, I no. strongly suspect we're going to see a conspiracy indictment. There is a catch-all conspiracy. We call it a 371 conspiracy because that is the federal statute section. It's 18 United States Code, Section 371. It's an extremely broad and sweeping conspiracy. It says, if anybody conspires, that is, agrees with others, to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States in any way, like you know, defrauding the United States out of a free and fair presidential election, that person can be indicted for a 371 conspiracy. So I suspect we're going to see a conspiracy charge. And then the question becomes, how many substantive crimes are included up under that umbrella conspiracy charge? What I'm really hopeful for is that the Department of Justice, Special Counsel Jack Smith, took the January 6th committee up on their recommendation, up on their referral. They said, we have enough evidence to show Donald Trump incited an insurrection, and we are referring him to you, Department of Justice, Executive Branch, for a possible indictment for inciting an insurrection. The reason I think that's such a crucial charge to bring is that if you're convicted of being involved in an insurrection, then the federal statute says you can be prohibited from ever serving in office again yeah. in the future. Not so if all you did, now, let me put it in, in all you did, if all you did was obstruct an official congressional proceeding, the certification of Joe Biden's win, that's a crime. It's a very serious crime, but the authorized punishment for that crime does not include prohibiting that person from serving in office in the future. So let's look at some of the other possible offenses. Some of the fake elector offenses, if Donald Trump ends up being charged with those and being convicted of those, they are not going to carry with them a prohibition saying Donald Trump can't hold office in the future. So I am hopeful that Jack Smith brings one or more charges that carries the possible sentence of prohibiting Donald Trump from serving in office in the future. So Glenn, with those range of charges, you mentioned insurrection, you mentioned the 371 conspiracy charge, you mentioned uh, anything related to these fake electors. Uh, all of which, by the way, just the caveat, this is all hypothetical right now, but with those range of charges, what is, what is the sentencing that we would be looking at for something like that? Now, he is looking at a de facto life sentence. Why do I say that? Because these charges that we're discussing have maximum punishments like five years, 10 years, 20 years. So if he's conducted, if, so if he's convicted of multiple offenses, and I suspect he will be, you know, you can only confine Donald Trump for but so long at his age. But, but I suspect he will be looking at decades in prison, which in a very real yeah. sense will end up being a life sentence for him. Right. Uh, Glenn, what is the principal defense that Trump is going to put, put forward in this Sorry, case? baby. You know, it depends on what charges are brought. For any conspiracy charge, he will almost certainly try to defend on, wait a minute, to prove a conspiracy, you have to prove 
I entered into a criminal agreement with another, and you can't prove that I entered into a criminal agreement. Frankly, Donald Trump has been awaiting this day for a very long time to be able to offer that defense in court. Why do I say that? Well, there's a reason he doesn't do text messages. He doesn't do emails. He doesn't put his criminal schemes in writing because he always wanted to be able to defend himself in court someday on you can't prove that because you don't have me putting any of that in writing as, as a prosecutor if you were prosecuting this case how would you push back against against that defense it's actually fairly easy i've prosecuted lots of conspiracy cases and virtually in every one there is some variation on that theme you can't prove i entered into a criminal agreement with another the fact of the matter is a criminal agreement for purposes of proving a conspiracy doesn't have to be written, doesn't even have to be expressed. It can actually be inferred. Let me use an example. If I see somebody across the street that I kind of know, and together we see a potential mark, a victim, let's say, you know, the stereotypical little old lady carrying her purse, I look at my associate, my associate looks at me, we give each other a nod, and we then go jointly rob that woman of her purse, we've entered into a criminal conspiracy. Was it written? No. Was it spoken? No. But it was inferred. How was it inferred? Based on our conduct. That's how you prove criminal conspiracies. You infer it from the circumstantial evidence. Like Donald Trump acting in concert with any number of people to unlawfully retain the power of the presidency, like the John Eastmans and the Jeffrey Clarks, the DOJ officials who tried to corrupt and weaponize the Department of Justice to do Donald Trump's dirty bidding. They certainly had an agreement, a criminal agreement, to try to help Donald Trump retain power, but it wasn't in writing. However, it can be inferred from their conduct. That's how you defeat that defense. And just uh, for any little old ladies watching, just you know, the Glenn that we know and love would, would never do that to you. So, so you're all good if you see Glenn, uh, Glenn on the street walking toward you. Um, Glenn, the four big cases uh, that we're looking at right now are the DOJ classified documents case, the DOJ's January 6th case, the Manhattan DA case for which Trump was already indicted, and the Fulton County case. Can you rank them in order of what you believe will be the most damaging to Trump from a prosecutor's point of view? It depends on how we define damage. Um, what case is most important from the perspective of the health and the viability of our democracy? Hands down, it is the January 6th case. Because if we let a president in the future do what Donald Trump did in the run-up to and on January 6th with impunity, not being held accountable for those crimes, then we can kiss our democracy goodbye in fairly short order, in my opinion. So I think for purposes of the, the viability of our democracy, January 6th is the most important. Now, what is most likely to land him in prison? The documents case, and it really, that's a misnomer. It's the documents obstruction of justice espionage case because he's charged with, loosely speaking, three batches of crimes involving those Three, uh, those three categories of criminal offenses. I think that will almost certainly land him in prison. There's so much precedent 
or somebody that is found to be in possession of classified information and national defense information that they had no right to be in possession of, those people go directly to jail, do not pass, go, do not collect $200. So I think that will very likely and fairly easily result in a conviction and prison time. And then I think Fawny Willis's case in Georgia is a bit of a wild card because I sense we are on the cusp of seeing what could be an enormous RICO conspiracy case indicted down in Georgia. We'll know in the coming weeks, and it will almost certainly include Donald Trump as a defendant. And, you know, Fawny Willis don't play, so I suspect Donald Trump will be facing some real legal jeopardy in Georgia. And then I think the least consequential one is the false business records case, still a crime in violation of New York state law, but that's being prosecuted by Alvin Bragg up in New York. And I would also add that the Fulton County case is especially significant because, you know, Trump is pushing all the while to push everything after the 2024 election, in which case he could hope to win the presidency and then use the levers of government to evade accountability for himself, he wouldn't be able to do that in Fulton County because that's a state crime. So even if he did find a way to pardon himself, which of course would be legally dubious, or use a corrupt attorney general to, to withdraw the DOJ from its own prosecution against him, he wouldn't be able to do that in the Fulton County case. So just adding to the wild card nature of, of what we're expecting to see out of Georgia. Glenn, let's finish off with this. What is the timeline for next steps here, given that Trump has now officially received the target letter? I know that we spoke about when we can expect uh, the indictment to be unsealed, but just just a, um, a broader range of what we can expect to see uh, as far as timeline goes. Yeah, interesting question, because let's assume Donald Trump is indicted for the insurrection in the coming days or weeks. You know, some people might think, well, is there kind of a first in, first out rule, right? First indictment, first trial. Not necessarily, because the first federal indictment was obviously the one down in Florida, the case um, over which Judge Aileen Cannon is presiding. But, you know, that has some built-in sort of speed bumps, like the Classified uh, Information Protection Act, SEPA. That tends to build in some delay, because they have to go through questions about, well, how do we sanitize the national security information out of these documents that Donald Trump allegedly was unlawfully retaining um, and still give the defendant his full right to defend himself at trial by arguing to a jury, for example, well, that really wasn't national defense information in those documents. So it can be a long, drawn-out procedure in the run-up to a criminal trial involving classified documents or national defense information, espionage charges. They also have to get security clearances for Donald Trump's lawyers. So there are some built-in speed bumps in that case. It could very well be that even though that case was indicted before what we suspect will be the soon-to-be-indicted insurrection case, the insurrection case could end up going to trial first. What I am confident of is that the prosecutors and the judges, and to a certain extent the defense attorneys in the various cases, will all have to do some coordinating with one another to set a common sense schedule about which of Donald Trump's trials go first, go second, go third, go fourth. I mean, whoever thought we'd be talking about four criminal trials yeah. against the former president of the United States. Yeah. Well, as things continue to heat up, we'll stay on top of this stuff. So for those of you watching, if you want to stay on top of everything as it continues to unfold and unfold pretty quickly, as we're seeing right now, make sure to subscribe. The links are right here on the screen. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen. I'm Glenn Kirkman. You're watching The Legal Breakdown.
hear that again. And might we expect an right indictment now. to be unsealed? I found interesting Trump's assertion that the prosecutors gave him four days to come up here before the grand jury. Now, first of all, there's been lots of reporting confirming that a target letter was delivered to Trump. Uh, I haven't seen any reporting confirming that, you know, they gave him four days to appear. But it may very well be that they gave him four days to appear. That is a very short fuse deadline. What that signals to me, Brian, is they are ready to indict. And they are prepared to give him four days to make the decision whether he wants to appear before the grand jury and testify. Of course, we all know there's no way he's going to appear before the grand jury to testify. So I think at the expiration of that four days, we could see a federal indictment for crimes on and around January 6, 2021 in fairly short order, like within a matter of a week or two. Okay, so does that mean that we have to wait until that period expires to give him the opportunity to be in front of the grand jury before we can see an indictment unsealed? You know, the only way that that four-day deadline would be altered is if Donald Trump's lawyers today, for example, said, we decline your offer. And then there would be no reason to wait another three days. So I, I think it unlikely. I don't think we're going to see an indictment before the expiration of the four days, but we could see one shortly thereafter. And if this letter was reportedly sent on Sunday, would that mean that we're likely looking at an indictment being unsealed on Thursday? Could very well be, but I suspect, again, if I had to bet, it's going to go into next week. Okay. What charges in this case do you anticipate seeing? Now, I strongly suspect we're going to see a conspiracy indictment. There is a catch-all conspiracy. We call it a 371 conspiracy because that is the federal statute section. It's 18 United States Code, Section 371. It's an extremely broad and sweeping conspiracy. It says, if anybody conspires, that is, agrees with others, to commit any offense against the United States, or to defraud the United States in any way, like you know, defrauding the United States out of a free and fair presidential election, that person can be indicted for a 371 conspiracy. So I suspect we're gonna see a conspiracy charge. And then the question becomes, how many substantive crimes are included up under that umbrella conspiracy charge? What I'm really hopeful for is that the Department of Justice, Special Counsel Jack Smith, took the January 6th committee up on their recommendation, up on their referral. They said, we have enough evidence to show Donald Trump incited an insurrection, and we are referring him to you, Department of Justice, Executive Branch, for a possible indictment for inciting an insurrection. The reason I think that's such a crucial charge to bring is that if you're convicted of being involved in an insurrection, then the federal statute says you can be prohibited from ever serving in office again in the future. Not so if all you did, now let me put a pin in all you did, if all you did was obstruct an official congressional proceeding, the certification of Joe Biden's win, that's a crime. It's a very serious crime, but the authorized punishment for that crime does not include prohibiting that person from serving in office in the future. So let's look at some of the other possible offenses. Some of the fake elector offenses. If Donald Trump ends up being charged with those and being convicted of those, 
they are not going to carry with them a prohibition saying Donald Trump can't hold office in the future. So I am hopeful that Jack Smith brings one or more charges that carries the possible sentence of prohibiting Donald Trump from serving in office in the future. Now, Glenn, with those range of charges, you mentioned insurrection, you mentioned the 371 conspiracy charge, you mentioned uh, anything related to these fake electors, uh, all of which, by the way, just the caveat, this is all hypothetical right now, but with those range of charges, what is, what is the sentencing that we would be looking at for something like that? Now, he is looking at a de facto life sentence. Why do I say that? Because these charges that we're discussing have maximum punishments like five years, 10 years, 20 years. So if he's conducted, if, so if he's convicted of multiple offenses, and I suspect he will be, you know, you can only confine Donald Trump for but so long at his age. But, but I suspect he will be looking at decades in prison which, in a very real sense, will end up being a life sentence for him. Okay. Uh, Glenn, what is the principal defense that Trump is going to put, put forward in this case? You know, it depends on what charges are brought. For any conspiracy charge, he will almost certainly try to defend on, wait a minute, to prove a conspiracy, you have to prove I entered into a criminal agreement with another, and you can't prove that I entered into a criminal agreement. Frankly, Donald Trump has been awaiting this day for a very long time to be able to offer that defense in court. Why do I say that? Well, there's a reason he doesn't do text messages. He doesn't do emails. He doesn't put his criminal schemes in writing because he always wanted to be able to defend himself in court someday on, you can't prove that because you don't have me putting any of that in writing. So like, as, as a prosecutor, if you were prosecuting this case, how would you push back against against that defense. It's actually fairly easy. I've prosecuted lots of conspiracy cases, and virtually in every one there is some variation on that theme. You can't prove I entered into a criminal agreement with another. The fact of the matter is, a criminal agreement for purposes of proving a conspiracy doesn't have to be written, doesn't even have to be expressed. It can actually be inferred. Let me use an example. If I see somebody across the street that I kind of know, and together we see a potential mark, a victim, let's say, you know, the stereotypical little old lady carrying her purse, I look at my associate, my associate looks at me, we give each other a nod, and we then go jointly rob that woman of her purse. We've entered into a criminal conspiracy. Was it written? No. Was it spoken? No. But it was inferred. How was it inferred? based on our conduct. That's how you prove criminal conspiracies. You infer it from the circumstantial evidence, like Donald Trump acting in concert with any number of people to unlawfully retain the power of the presidency, like the John Eastman and the Jeffrey Clarks, the DOJ official who tried to corrupt and weaponize the Department of Justice to do Donald Trump's dirty bidding. They certainly had an agreement, a criminal agreement, to try to help Donald Trump retain power, but it wasn't in writing. However, it can be inferred from their conduct. That's how you defeat that defense. And just uh, for any little old ladies watching, just 
you know, the Glenn that we know and love would, would never do that to you. So, so you're all good if you see Glenn, uh, Glenn on the street walking toward you. Um, Glenn, the four big cases uh, that we're looking at right now are the DOJ classified documents case, the DOJ's January 6th case, the Manhattan DA case for which Trump was already indicted, and the Fulton County case. Can you rank them in order of what you believe will be the most damaging to Trump from a prosecutor's point of view? It depends on how we define damage. Um, what case is most important from the perspective of the health, indeed, viability of our democracy? Hands down, it is the January 6th case. Because if we let a president in the future do what Donald Trump did in the run-up to and on January 6th with impunity, not being held accountable for those crimes, then we can kiss our democracy goodbye in fairly short order, in my opinion. So I think for purposes of the, the viability of our democracy, January 6th is the most important. Now, what is most likely to land him in prison? The documents case, and it really, that's a misnomer. It's the documents obstruction of justice espionage case because he's charged with loosely speaking three batches of crimes involving those Three, uh, those three categories of criminal offenses. I think that will almost certainly land him in prison. There's so much precedent for somebody that is found to be in possession of classified information and national defense information that they had no right to be in possession of. Those people go directly to jail, do not pass, go, do not collect $200. So I think that will very likely and fairly easily result in a conviction and prison time. And then I think Fawny Willis's case in Georgia is a bit of a wild card because I sense we are on the cusp of seeing what could be an enormous RICO conspiracy case indicted down in Georgia. We'll know in the coming weeks. And it will almost certainly include Donald Trump as a defendant. And, you know, Fawny Willis don't play. So I suspect Donald Trump will be facing some real legal jeopardy in Georgia. And then I think the least consequential one is the false business records case, still a crime in violation of New York state law, but that's being prosecuted by Alvin Bragg up in New York. And I would also add that the Fulton County case is especially significant because, you know, Trump is pushing all the while to push everything after the 2024 election, in which case he could hope to win the presidency and then use the levers of government to evade accountability for himself. He wouldn't be able to do that in Fulton County because that's a state crime. So even if he did find a way to pardon himself, which of course would be legally dubious, or use a corrupt attorney general to, to withdraw the DOJ from its own prosecution against him, he wouldn't be able to do that in the Fulton County case. So just adding to the wild card nature of, of what we're expecting to see out of Georgia. Then let's finish off with this. What is the timeline for next steps here, given that Trump has now officially received the target letter? I know that we spoke about when we can expect uh, the indictment to be unsealed, but just, just a, um, a broader range of what we can expect to see uh, as far as timeline goes. Yeah, interesting question, because let's assume Donald Trump is indicted for the insurrection in the coming days or weeks. You know, some people might think, well, is there kind of a first in, first out rule, right? First indictment, first trial? Not necessarily, because the first federal indictment was obviously the one down in Florida, the case um, over which Judge Aileen Cannon is presiding. But, you know, that has some built-in sort of speed bumps, like the Classified uh, Information Protection Act. SEPA. That tends to build in some delay because they have to go through questions about, well, how do we sanitize the national security information out of these documents that Donald Trump allegedly was 
unlawfully retaining um, and still give the defendant his full right to defend himself at trial by arguing to a jury, for example, well, that really wasn't national defense information in those documents. So it can be a long drawn out procedure in the run up to a criminal trial involving classified documents or national defense in information, espionage charges. They also have to get security clearances for Donald Trump's lawyers. So there are some built-in speed bumps in that case. It could very well be that even though that case was indicted before what we suspect will be the soon-to-be-indicted insurrection case, the insurrection case could end up going to trial first. What I am confident of is that the prosecutors and the judges, and to a certain extent, the defense attorneys in the various cases, will all have to do some coordinating with one another to set a common sense schedule about which of Donald Trump's trials go first, go second, go third, Hi, go fourth. I mean, whoever thought we'd be talking about four criminal trials yeah. against the former president of the United States. Well, as things continue to heat up, we'll stay on top of this stuff. So for those of you watching, if you want to stay on top of everything as it continues to unfold and unfold pretty quickly, as we're seeing right now, one see one shortly thereafter not follow through with an indictment. Okay, so so it's not a guarantee insofar as nothing is really a guarantee until it happens, but it's as close as we can get without it being that guarantee. Is that correct? I would bet I would bet my one buck on it, yes. Okay. Uh, Glenn, Trump claimed that he received this letter on Sunday. So using that timeline, when might we expect an indictment to be unsealed? I found interesting Trump's assertion that the prosecutors gave him four days to come appear before the grand jury. Now, first of all, there's been lots of reporting confirming that a target letter was delivered to Trump. Uh, I haven't seen any reporting confirming that, you know, they gave him four days to appear. But it may very well be that they gave him four days to appear. That is a very short fuse deadline. What that signals to me, Brian, is they are ready to indict. And they are prepared to give him four days to make the decision whether he wants to appear before the grand jury and testify. Of course, we all know. There's no way he's going to appear before the grand jury to testify. So I think at the expiration of that four days, we could see a federal indictment for crimes on yeah. and around January 6, 2021, Yippee. in fairly short order, like within a matter of a week or two. Okay, so yeah. does that mean that we have to wait until that period expires to give him the opportunity to be in front of the grand jury before we can see an indictment unsealed? You know, the only way that that four-day deadline would be altered is if Donald Trump's lawyers today, for example, said, we decline your offer. And then there would be no reason to wait another three days. So I, I think it unlikely. I don't think we're going to see an indictment before the expiration of the four days, but we could see one shortly thereafter. And if this letter was purportedly sent on Sunday, would that mean that we're likely looking at an indictment being unsealed on Thursday? Yeah. Could very well be, but I suspect, again, if I had to bet, it's going to go into next week. Okay. What charges in this case do you anticipate seeing? Now, I strongly suspect we're going to see a conspiracy indictment. There is a catch-all conspiracy. We call it a 371 conspiracy because that is the federal statute section. It's 18 United States Code, Section 371. It's an extremely broad and sweeping conspiracy. It says, if anybody conspires, that is, agrees with others, to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States in any way, like 
you know, defrauding the United States out of a free and fair presidential election, that person can be indicted for a 371 conspiracy. So I suspect we're going to see a conspiracy charge. And then the question becomes, how many substantive crimes are included up under that umbrella conspiracy charge? What I'm really hopeful for is that the Department of Justice, Special Counsel Jack Smith, took the January 6th committee up on their recommendation, up on their referral. They said, we have enough evidence to show Donald Trump incited an insurrection, and we are referring him to you, Department of Justice, Executive Branch, for a possible indictment for inciting an insurrection. The reason I think that's such a crucial charge to bring is that if you're convicted of being involved in an insurrection, then the federal statute says you can be prohibited from ever serving in office again in the future. Not so if all you did, now let me put a pin in all you did, if all you did was obstruct an official congressional proceeding, the certification of Joe Biden's win, that's a crime. It's a very serious crime, but the authorized punishment for that crime does not include prohibiting that person from serving in office in the future. So let's look at some of the other possible offenses. Some of the fake elector offenses, if Donald Trump ends up being charged with those and being convicted of those, they are not going to carry with them a prohibition saying mm -hmm. Donald Trump can't hold office in the future. So I am hopeful that Jack Smith brings one or more charges that carries the possible sentence of prohibiting Donald Trump Please. from serving in office in the future. Come on. Now, Glenn, with Fuck those on. range of charges, you mentioned insurrection, you mentioned a 371 conspiracy charge, you mentioned uh, anything related to these fake electors, uh, all of which, by the way, just the caveat, this is all hypothetical right now, but with those range of charges, what is, what is the sentencing that we would be looking at for something like that? Now, he is looking at a de facto life sentence. Why do I yeah. say that? Because these charges that we're discussing have maximum punishments like five years, 10 years, 20 years. So if he's conducted, if, so if he's convicted of multiple offenses, and I suspect he will be, you know, you can... He expects Diaper Donald. So I'm, I'm creating a, um, I have one new follow on YouTube, it goes so slowly, I get YouTube followers so fucking slowly.
Yay! Any minute now. Stevie, Rayvon, Lone Star. Morning day. Oh, it's live, Trump, legal AF. As president, and you gotta have federal defenses. If you don't have those three, cherry, 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 ching, no jackpot, you don't get to go to federal court. What did Judge Hellerstein say about that? Yeah, I mean, he rejected the argument resoundingly, and he said that, you know, Trump has failed to show that the conduct charged by the indictment is for or relating to any act performed by or for the president under color of the official acts of the president. You know, Trump has also failed to show that he has a colorable federal defense to the indictment. That's a quote I just, uh, I just read from. And, you know, of course, Brad was pleased. And um, this is exactly what Hellerstein had said, you know, in the hearing last month that he was skeptical of Trump's argument. And he signaled that this was how he was going to rule. Uh, you know, he, he said it's very clear that, that, you know, that the act that the president's been indicted for doesn't relate to anything under the color of office. And in fact, if you remember the Manhattan DA's office in their motion, you know, they threw that back in, uh, in the defendant's face. You know, the defendant himself had said in their papers and, and there was the Bragg quoted him, you know, the defendant had said, oh, this is personal. You know, this is, this is nothing to see here. You know, this is just a private lawyer you know, doing something for, for Trump in a private, personal thing. Well, so then how can that be under the color of law? And Hellerstein, Hellerstein agreed and sent it back to Judge Marchand. So, you know, this is going to be in state court. And unless uh, a federal judge says, hey, can I go first? I think that this case is going to go in March. You know, Judge Marchand is not one to allow uh, Trump's March. delay tactics to work. He, he knows that that's what Trump does. And if he says the trial is going to be March 24th, it is going to be March 24th. He won't allow any excuses. So like I said, the only thing Yay. I think that could potentially bump that will be uh, if, if, a, if a federal judge asked, could, you know, can we go first? Yeah, the quote that I love from Hellerstein, because I think it, it, it was buried on page like 49 of 50, but it completely summed up his entire point. He could have led with that. If he was a meaner judge, he What's would have led on, with huh? this line. Everybody <laughs> okay? Done. And by the way, before I get to it, this is just another example. Well, there's two in this this, uh, this edition of Legal AF tonight where Trump's strategy backfired and gave the judge in, in the Eugene Carroll case we're going to talk about next and here an opportunity in 50 pages or less to lay out all of the evidence against Donald Trump in excruciating detail for the American public to see one more time now written by federal by two different federal judges. If they, I don't know if that was their, um, if they calculated that that could happen, but it happened. And so here's what Hellerstein said, and I quote, the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that the matter, the Stormy Daniels cover-up, was a private, personal item of Trump's, a cover-up of an embarrassing event. And then he ended with, hush money paid to an adult film star is not related to the president's official duties. He could have led with that one, right, Karen? That's the whole case. That's it. That's yeah. why you don't get federal. You don't get federal jurisdiction 
and all the other things like the defenses that he said. Oh, well, the second crime, because this is a unique New York statute that you know well, that requires that the cover-up be also in furtherance of another crime. It doesn't have to be an indicted crime, but another crime. Could be state, could be federal. And they said it's state election law and federal election law because the cover-up, which was paying Stormy Daniels $130,000, but doing a round trip through Michael Cohen, then the lawyer and the chief fixer, and pay, and then paying him back under the cover of a legal retainer or legal engagement letter, like he was acting like a lawyer and not just the conduit for the cash, which is what he was. Um, and then they gave him enough because they because because it was one hundred thirty thousand, they added fifty thousand dollars on top of it. Then they grossed it up to double that. Then they put a bonus on top of it for Michael Cohen's purposes, and then they listed it all in $35,000 payments month after month after month to repay Michael Cohen and reimburse him and give him a bonus on top of it for doing the cover-up for Donald Trump all through Alan Weisselberg, the CFO who went to jail for five and a half months for other, for other reasons. And so this, how do I know all that? Well, I knew it from the indictment, but I really know it because Judge Hellerstein wrote it in his opinion based on the evidence that was presented to him in his review of the record, which Donald Trump forced him to do in order to rule that he was he was going to go back to state court. All of us that got this, I mean, I know you, you thought there was like a, I don't know, 2% chance. I thought there was a 0% chance, I think Ben did too, that this was ever going to get sucked into federal court. But the fact that they went for this, they like swung for the fences from the defense just to get a 50-page order back at them, which basically laid out, like I said, for the American people oh, so exquisitely oh, and painstakingly uh, in detail oh. about what Donald Trump did and the cover-up that he did in advance of a jury being picked in March. This is not, this is the game you can't shoot straight when it comes to defense of Donald Trump. And we're better off because of it. Uh, I was going to go, unless you had something else on Hellerstein, I was going to move on to uh, Eugene Carroll. That's a perfect segue to Eugene Carroll because in yet another 50-plus page ruling, yet another judge, Judge Lewis Kaplan, laid out for the American people in excruciating detail exactly what it was like the summary of the trial. Have you ever? I've, I've never read a decision. It was like he was trying to talk to the rest of us, you know, giving this huge decision where he summarizes and, and lists part of the transcripts, right? He's quoting from the transcripts. He's saying, he's listing all the areas. You know, I, I didn't mean to steal your thoughts. I'll turn it over to you to um, no, no, explain keep going. the issue. You, but, you, you know. You, 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 can't steal, you can't steal what I graciously give you. Go. <laughs> you take it. So Hold on. Actually, I'm going to give it to you for one second. <laughs> okay, no problem. I know what's going on. All right. well, let, me, let me lead on this one. While Sorry, my, my, uh, my family just <laughs> walked in the door. I apologize. I and I have I to heard. tell them that I'm hot. We're live, everybody. I All right, so, so here, let me just run it down, and then Carol, Carol rejoins in progress. Uh, this was another opportunity, as Karen said, for the judge, because Trump invited it to outline all of the evidence that was presented to the nine-person jury in New York, which, can, which convicted, should have been convicted, a judge rendered a verdict in a civil case that Donald Trump committed sex abuse and defamed um, E. Jean Carroll 
who who the jury believed and found on the weight of the evidence was sexually abused and assaulted and battered in a New York dressing room, department store dressing room in 1996. And the judge was very uh, uh, focused on, because he has eyes and ears and he reads the papers and he knows that Donald Trump has been on some sort of weird I've been vindicated tour claiming that the jury, because they didn't check the box of rape and only checked the box of sexual abuse, somehow vindicated him. And the judge said, well, let's start with that. <laughs> the judge said, in New York, we have a very unique penal code, a very unique criminal code. And that criminal code requires, unlike most states, that a penis go into a vagina against will in order for there to be a rape. If it's anything short of that, if it's a, a finger, another body part, uh, some other instrumentality, then that could be sexual abuse, but it can't be rape. The judge said, but it was effectively rape in the common parlance. In other words, Donald Trump's a rapist. That's what the jury found. And the fact that they only, we gave them on the jury verdict form which is the form that is listed, um, you know, that's given to the jury to cycle through in a decision-making tree how to render their verdict. That form is, is not just something you rip out of a, a form book. That's developed by the lawyers. So Joe Tacopina and Alina Hava had just as much say into what that form would look like as the lawyers for E. Jean Carroll, Robbie Kaplan. And the judge reminded them of that. Hey, I used your verdict form. And we put on that verdict form. Is it rape, sexual abuse, or forcible touching? Those are your three choices. And if you find one of those three choices, then you will you have to conclude, jury, that E. Jean Carroll prevails on her uh, claim that she was battered sexually by Donald Trump and then go down and award her damages. And then if you find that and you want to award her punitive damages and then do the same for defamation. And the jury returned the verdict. And the only reason they didn't check the box on rape, the judge reminded Donald Trump and the world, is because there was a little bit of contrary evidence about whether his penis went inside her or his finger. Finger definitely evidence came out. The other evidence was a little bit uh, split. So that's it. But the judge spent the first part of the order saying, you're a rapist, Donald Trump. And in the common parlance, everybody would assume that you're a rapist. And then went through... All of the evidence that was presented, none of the evidence that Donald Trump put on, because he didn't put on any evidence, he made a point, the judge, of saying, you didn't even bother to show up at your own trial, let alone testify at your own trial. There were two outcry witnesses, which are very unique witnesses in the law, especially in criminal law. Outcry witnesses are those witnesses that are nearby who hear the person who's being attacked or, or struggled. In this case, it extends to people like Lisa Bernbach, the author, and Carol Martin, the, um, the uh, TV uh, newscaster, who were called on a phone by E. Jean Carroll moments just after the attack, the sexual abuse, the rape in the department store dressing room. And that person who hears that, because it has such a high degree of credibility, when somebody says something still in the moment of the attack, uh, the judge made sure that noted that these were two outcry witnesses and then mentioned the Access Hollywood tape, 
in which Donald Trump said without with, with impunity he could grab a woman in her genitalia. And two other witnesses who testified about his MO of groping, grabbing, and sexually attacking people. And based on that, the judge concluded, you know, we may not have led off with what, I'm sorry if we didn't lead off with what this motion was about. Donald Trump had filed a motion to try to get a new trial, arguing that the jury had gone too far, that the jury was uh, confused by the evidence and didn't understand the, the, the charges that were, uh, the instructions that were given. And in any event, the amount of money, the $5 million, should be reduced by the judge in an act in the law we call remitter. It should be remitted down to a lower number. The judge said, the, the ver I'm not taking away the verdict from the jury. This is a jury process. We respect the jury process. It would, there was nothing that was a miscarriage of justice that requires me to, to throw out the result and start all over again. And they were, in, they were within every one of their rights, given the evidence that was presented, to award the amount of money that they did. In fact, many of us ask, I was going to ask you to define... We thought the award was too low. I thought the award was too low. I was going to ask you to define remitter. I was like, that's a, that's a new word for, you know, legal <laughs> remitter. Remitter. Yeah. yeah, whenever you ask the judge to lower or change the damage amount that's been given... You never ask him to raise it. Uh, you yeah. can, though. You can actually ask him to raise it if you're the, the plaintiff. They didn't do that. They said, well, we'll take the $5 million. Of course, now in the second case, what, why don't you talk about what you observe from the judge's rulings now that you're back, and then kind of tie it to the next case, which is coming up on the Trump on trial trial docket, which is a $10 million punitive damage case. And what do you think this means for the, remember, they're still pending with this very same judge who wrote 59 pages of scathing analysis calling Trump a rapist. He's also con continuing, he's considering uh, the motion to dismiss the defamation claim that Trump brought against E. Jean Carroll because he's not a rapist. So you've got, talk about what do you think is going to happen with that ruling, because that's the same judge, and then what do you think goes on with the trial and the punitive damage, ten million dollar amount that follows. Yeah, look. So the the, the um, this decision, some of my favorite highlights were, you know, where when Judge Kaplan said things like, you know, uh, your argument is frivolous. You know, I love that he that he said that about about uh, what he was saying about the whole rape thing. And I also, you know, that that it's not rape and it's ridiculous and offensive, you know. But but calling him that it's a frivolous argument is just one more kind of dig, you know, uh, dig to Trump. And you know, I, I think this was, you know, I thought I thought that the the um, decision was uh, was great. You know, he also called Trump out for not appealing anything like the jury verdict, the sheet, or the jury instructions. You know, all he appealed was was really the damages. He kind of called, you know, he kind of called him out on that, right? That you didn't appeal anything else here or you didn't make a motion here on anything else. And he also just said that, you know, look, the jury in this case didn't reach a seriously erroneous verdict. And it's uh, and it's not a quote miscarriage of justice, and so you know he denied these motions. And I think, look, this is his way of signaling what he's going to do in the next case. I, I think the next case is a slam dunk, you know, for E. Jean Carroll. It's you know when when they when E. Jean Carroll one goes right because there's already been a finding here 
that he that he raped her or sexually assaulted her and you know the, there was a discussion about you know trump said in his motions that you know that that it was you know there wasn't any inserting anything anywhere it was just touching of the breasts and and you know the judge says no that's not what the evidence was. And i think part of this motion was to lay out the facts you know clearly so that in E. Jean Carroll one, that is, that it's like he found these facts, right? Not just that the jury found them, but now the judge is finding them. This is what was, what was found. This is what the decision was. This is what the instruction was. And now it's just going to be a matter of, of, of finding of, of damages. I mean, first of all, he's going to throw out Trump's count, counterclaim against E. Jean Carroll. It's completely offensive, you know, that, that he would say, um, her saying that now is defamation because what he said in this decision he set up his decision for that in this de in this decision when he said look the common term of for rape is you know any sexual violation when somebody inserts something you know, if you're a woman and, and you have something inserted against your will you know forcibly into your vagina you know what one it's not rape because it's not his penis you know a finger is is not rape it's rape you know that's what most people when they talk about it so just because new york is one of the only states that hasn't caught up to the times and has this very narrow specific definition in common parlance you know and, and eugene and carroll is is a woman she's not you know just a lawyer or you know a new york lawyer who's steeped in the law you know to her she was raped she was violated horrifically and so i think it's going to be very clear that uh he's going to find that that you know he's going to dismiss um that motion you know he's going he's going to do he's going to dismiss that complaint i should say that counterclaim because it's absolutely frivolous. I think he could even get sanctioned. Uh, I think it's going to be a rule 11 sanction for bringing that it's and it's harassment of E. Jean Carroll and by, by bringing it at all. And I think the dam, I think the damages in this next case, given his, his, um, repeated claims, uh, uh his repeated def defaming of her that he's been doing not only the day of the verdict, but every time he's asked about it or any opportunity he gets after that to talk about it, he continues his defamation. I, I think his, I think the, um, bringing the counterclaim against her, you know, I think that would also be grounds for f further punitive damages. I don't know if, you know, if he dismisses that, if he would then allow uh, that evidence to come out before the jury, you know, to, to kind of show, look at what he did, you know, he's, he's continuing his defamation and harassment by, by bringing that. Um, but I, but I think he's going to get hit hard. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think there's two levels of sanctions that could come. By calling it frivolous and denying the motion to reduce the damage amount or set a new trial, the judge is inviting Robbie Kaplan for E. Jean Carroll to file a motion for sanctions. He's already open to it because he's already made the first finding. It's frivolous. If it's, you can't file frivolous things in federal court. You shouldn't do it in any court, but you certainly can't do it in federal court without repercussion. So that's one, and you're, you're right on board with you that this is the guy, the judge, is going to be deciding on the motion to dismiss the case uh, brought, in, like you said, in retaliatory fashion in a way to chill the First Amendment rights of E. Jean Carroll. We've all seen the clip that he's relying on where on CNN the reporter turned to her and said, Hey, E. Jean, when you heard the jury return the verdict and they returned the verdict of sexual abuse and didn't check the box for rape, what was going through your mind? 
and she quite honestly said what was going through her mind. What was going through her mind was, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Which is exactly what she told Joe Tacopina when the trial was over. He went over in some sort of weird, magnanimous gesture to shake her hand, and she said, you know he did it. I know he did it. You know he did it. You know, She's allowed to say those things. And the judge sort of... I know he did it. I just didn't know if... Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't feel the difference between his finger and his penis. Right. I'm not, I'm, I, I never go there, but it's okay. We're now there. So, the... Everybody the, keeps um, the, walking uh, now, over. I, now, now I'm a shade of red I've never been before. She said... Okay, I got it back. He fisted her. <laughs> so he put so, her hand inside her okay, and twisted the, his um, finger, curled his fingers. The judge spent and spilled a lot of ink in his 50 pages, 59 pages, to basically say, yes, you are. Forgets. Everybody forgets that E, G, and Carol, she had Carol, E, G, and Carol testified he put his hands inside her and curled up as that is what is known as fisting, torture. federal judge says so. You're a rapist. You're play, you know, you're, you're, you're playing word games and splitting hairs, uh, which there's, there's no, this is a distinction without a difference. You are, for all intents and purposes, in the history books and forevermore, branded by a federal judge, a rapist. Now let's move on. And what was your case about? You think you're defamed because she said that you were a rapist in her mind when the, when the, uh, reporter asked her what her true feelings and authentic feelings were about the jury verdict. That's, I agree with you, that's going to be sanctionable. So that $5 million and $5.5 million that's been deposited by Donald Trump in the court registry, awaiting the end of the appeal, and as soon as it's over and he loses the appeal, which he will, that money then gets directly, there'll be a motion by Robbie Kaplan, the, the lawyer for Eugene Carroll, to release the money from the Torture. Uh, court 
registry and have it paid directly to her trust account on behalf of her client. The judge will sign that. There'll be no hearing, and the money will go out. But add to that, whatever the judge tacks on for sanctions, which are usually in the form of attorney's fees and costs incurred by the other side. So they put in, once the judge awards it, they'll say, I'll, and I'll submit your uh, affidavit, fee affidavit, fee application, show me exactly what you spent for all these events. And then we'll have a hearing on that, and then I'll award that. And that gets tacked on to the judgment. And, uh, and, and 